0: Welcome to The Few Podcast. Never in the field of human content, but so much owed by so many, can so few. So you want to become one of The Few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one
1: foot in front of the other. Things take time.
2: I have a dream.
1: Hear inspiring stories from The Few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality.
2: It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Marvel. Four, three.
1: One. We have a now, with your hosts, Boo and Sean.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Few with me, Boo, and my good pal, Sean. How are you, mate?
1: Hey, Boo. Really good, mate. Really good up here in uh, sunny New South. I hear that Sydney's uh, been turning on the weather for you, or maybe not.
0: Uh, it's very much, uh, very much unsummer here at the moment. In fact, I just got back from the US where it's uh, four autumn. And uh, it was far balmier and more beach weather than it is here. So anyway, I'm sure things will uh, will look up pretty shortly. Hey, yeah, uh, pretty excited today. A bit of a legend on the show, and we're going to make uh, a detour into the sporting realm and see where we can learn some some lessons from someone that's, gosh, probably really is one of the few, don't you think? Absolutely, with the.
1: The results, the history, the background, the influence, absolutely. I would put our guest, today's guest, in that category for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, look, with no further ado, we've got the, uh, the coach of, of what's widely regarded as our greatest sporting team, one of the greatest eras in uh, Australian cricket, John Buchanan. John, thanks so much for joining Sean and I on the show today.
2: Great pleasure, Boo and Sean. Fantastic to be here. Yeah.
0: Great to have you, John. Hey, John. How does it feel when people say something like that? You're at the helm of the of the greatest team in all in all time. What does that mean to you?
2: Oh well, yeah, a range of things, I suppose. I mean, one, it's fantastic to have been part of that. It was a real privilege to be there. You know, as a young boy growing up, like everybody, you have a whole range of different dreams, don't you? My dream was to put on the baggy green cap and, and play for Australia. And um, you know, I chased that dream for a, a period of time, but unfortunately abilities went one direction and, you know, ambition was sort of, sort of going in another direction. So I had to change those dreams. But eventually I was fortunate enough to be yeah, the head coach of an Australian team in an era where there were some great players and we achieved some fantastic things. So that that's always tremendous to have been a part of. And, you know, I, as I said, it, it was just a, a great privilege to be there.
1: That's amazing. One thing I really uh, enjoy when we have interviewed people from the sporting uh, arena for the podcast so far is, is the correlation, the simple correlation between you know a lot of our, uh, our listeners are in, in businesses and run teams and would love to run high-performing teams within those businesses as well. And I mean, obviously a sporting team or a team within a business has some very similar dynamics. Where do you see some of those direct correlations in you know, leading a sporting team versus say people that, that are running businesses with teams?
2: Well, I think you just mentioned one of them there, Sean, and and you talked about high performance. Well, I guess I say peak performance. It um, you know a bit of a play on words, I suppose, but it, it just seems to me that leaders of teams, which is you know in a sporting sense, you know, coaches and captains and so on, and, and maybe some senior members of that team, but within a business sense, it's boards, it's CEOs, it's that senior leadership team. They have to be very clear, I think, on setting an aspiring as well as an inspiring vision, something that's really going to stretch the groups that they have and the organisation they have. And then they've got to understand, well, where are we now? And then therefore, what are the steps that we need to take to get there? So from from vision, then it's about strategy. From strategy, then it's about establishing your, your real, what I term a leadership culture, which is from the leaders who have got to lead by example. You know, they've got to live and breathe and, and do everything that says peak performance all the time. And then, of course, they can't just do it by themselves. They really require their staff, their people, anybody associated with the business to lead as well. You know, so they might not have a, a formal title. There's a, a fantastic book from uh, Robin Sharma that talks a lot about that, you know, leading without title. and. It is so important that people within your business or athletes within your team or support staff within a sporting team lead by doing, lead by action, lead by their behaviours so that then you really begin to establish a, a really powerful leadership culture. Then, you you know, you've got to tie in other bits and pieces around that. Your systems and your processes have really got to support that. One of those is is your learning environment, your ability to try and grow your people, try and grow the organisation, you know. So to me, it was always important, obviously, the players didn't necessarily want to leave the team, but in a business sense, you've got to grow people so that you're prepared to lose them. So they outgrow your business, but you're really doing them a great service in terms of growing them. And then beyond that, you've got to get the right people and you've got to be able to measure how you're moving, whether you're going in the right direction or not. So, that, you know, they, I think there's some of the things that really correlate between sport and business
1: john just to just to build on what you said there or or make sure i understand that is what you're saying then that it's actually the responsibility of everybody in the team to to show up in their own right as a leader to be able to support the outcome as opposed to leaders i suppose being the people at the top and then there's everyone else sitting in in amongst them or, or below them
2: yeah totally john i mean I guess one of my sayings was always to try to have the individual person be their own best coach. So, you know, in a sporting sense, and and we were obviously playing at an elite level, so that meant that their skill levels, they needed to be able to deliver those on a regular basis all the time. Now it's all very well to have coaches and all very well to have good support systems and so on. But at the end of the day, they needed to go out on the field and make decisions based around game plans, et cetera. But nonetheless, plans never really sort of flow as you put them together off-field because there's so many other things that are going to happen because you you just can't predict what the future is going to bring you. So so therefore, you want the individual person to be able to respond to what's been thrown at them and make good decisions and then good execution of those decisions uh, all the time. So to do that, that person has got to take on that responsibility and that accountability to do it for themselves, but also for to do it for for their teammates around them. The other part that then you throw into that is, well, it's all very well to have a whole group of individuals, but we really need to pull this thing together as a team. So then it's about how I, as an individual, whether it be the head coach or whether it be the player, how do I contribute to the team culture as opposed to just looking after myself.
0: There's a saying out there, John, and you've probably heard it before, what would you rather, a team of greats or a great team and you obviously had both. So what were some of the leadership challenges when you have a team of strong leaders and getting the most out of them without having the clashes or maybe accepting that there's clashes and competition but nurturing that in a positive way? That must have been a challenging environment.
2: It is, and, and I think that's important always. You know, I guess where you had the opportunity to bring people into your group For me, it was always about trying to bring in difference, not bring in necessarily similar types of people. And for that reason, it it meant that there was going to be conflict, there were going to be clashes, there was going to be some debate and discussion. And I guess that's one of the key roles of coaches and leaders is either to nurture that, but to nurture it in a way that it is actually helpful. And it grows the group as opposed to something that could be quite divisive because, as we know, if there's conflict going on and and you're not dealing with it, then really that begins to fragment the team, fragment individuals, clicks, develop. You know, all those sorts of things can happen. And it's not to say that that doesn't happen, but provided that, you know, you're aware of those things and your goal is to create that, if you like, that conflict because in that Great ideas come or, or ideas that, that somebody might have, you know, put to one side because they seem to be, you know, either not practical or not relevant. Now, you know, and in there there are obviously good supporters and there are other people who are not supporters. And they can flip from side to side at different times depending on what it is that you're actually doing, whether it's, you know, something right in front of us, or whether it's long-term planning, or whether it's something to do with data, or whether it's something to do with. Travel, whether it's something to do with food, a whole range of things go into that mix, and that does make it interesting, challenging, but I think um, pretty exciting to deal with over time.
0: There's obviously a lot of opportunity in what you do, and what any what any coach of a national team or or any high performing team there's there's obviously a lot of uh, opportunities to make excuses. You've got selectors that are involved in in picking the players and the resources you have within your your unit, your your team or your business. There's the competition, the other teams that have various movable parts. How do you build a culture where you avoid finding excuses in the things you can't control?
2: Yeah, not not necessarily always that easy, but it, it does seem around this notion of leadership culture, and it does seem to me around developing the individual as their own best coach, there is an inbuilt accountability to myself and then to the rest of the group. And, you know, I think that doesn't necessarily mean that you exclude all excuses, but it does put you on the right track to at least identify when there are excuses being made or used to either an individual's advantage or or, or the team. And then it gives you an opportunity to begin to deal with those.
0: Were there ever times, John, where you had some of those external things happening, and you just felt like you couldn't control it, like it was a, it was something that was almost insurmountable? And and if so, how did you deal with it?
2: Yeah, well, I, I guess one of the best examples of that uh, was, you know, we had an Ashes series in England in two thousand and five, which we lost, and you know, it, it ranks as one of the great series of all time simply because it was a close contest and there was just huge interest in England at the time for cricket and, and of course, England won the series. So, you know, from their point of view, it's fantastic. From our point of view, it was terrible. But right through that series, I think we all, in our own ways, were seeing ourselves as either victims and, therefore, if you see yourself as a victim of something, then that enables this notion of excuses to be quite prevalent and and almost quite standard and therefore acceptable. And I know for myself, you know, when I look back on that series as a coach, I see it as one of the my worst coaching periods simply because I allowed myself to become a victim. I allowed myself to get caught up in the just the whole maelstrom of what was going on with the series. It was just so tense. There were so many things going on in the dressing room as well as outside the dressing room. And... At the same stage, as you said, a lot of things that were uncontrollable, like England, were actually playing well for a change. You know, the crowds were getting in behind the English team, so it was a really a feeling of isolation almost when you went to a a ground because it was just this little small group of Australians but surrounded by, you know, the English team and English public. When we came back from that series... You know, I had to justify my position as coach because the board had said, well, you know, if you've lost to the Poms, you know, that's the worst thing you can do in sport and, and particularly in cricket. So, you know, we need a change. So it forced me to really look inside myself again. And I've been with the team some six years by that stage. And it made me ask a few questions. One was, you know, could I still make a difference? Because that was really always important to me. It was really important to me that, you know, that we're always going to be a leader. We were always going to be ahead of the game. We were trying to change the game. So was I still in a position to do that, at least in my thinking and and my reading of the game and, and my desire to do that? And then, of course, I might feel that way, but did I still really passionately want to do it? Did I still want to, you know, be away from home so much, be under the scrutiny of public and media and stakeholders so much, did I want to necessarily be around thirty-five-year-old children that you're kind of helping to guide and support and do all those things? Did I really want to do that? You know. So, and then the third question was: even if I had both of those, even if I answered both of those as yes, which I did, did I still have the respect of the senior players? You know. So I needed to check in with them, and so once I had those three things sorted out in my mind, then I was able to go to the board and say, well. This is where we're going for the next twenty months. This is how we're going to go about it, and this is what we might expect. And so, from that, it, it enabled the launch to going back into the group, and that's where we, you know, had a day and a half session of just pretty open review of what had happened in England amongst all of us, and and that's where I guess excuses came to the fore. That's where various issues came to the fore whether it be about the coach, whether it be about a player, whether it be about the way that we're going about doing things. And so we're able then in that in that forum where everybody had the opportunity to, to talk openly and honestly to really put to rest some of the things that had happened in England and then set ourselves up for what this next part of the journey was going to be.
1: One of the things that, uh, that just popped up from what you're saying there is, again, a correlation of whether you're in business with a team, whether you work with a sporting team, whatever the case is. But when you have hindsight, obviously, the hindsight is an incredible thing. And you mentioned that it was one of your best coaching periods then. What is it that you, as a leader for yourself, what did you learn, you know, in going through that process? And what did you take away from that, that you then said, right, okay, I, I can see what, what didn't work. Now I need to do this. It's going to work. What was those things, some of those things that you learned?
2: Well, I think one of the the most important learnings was, again, not to get caught on the dance floor so much. You know, one of the things that I generally was good at doing before that and I think I was good at doing after that was reading the, the pulse of the team. Now, that was done by myself, being able to step back, but it was also because I could actually tap into a few of the players or support staff and maybe ask the right questions at the right time to hear what was going on. And during that tour, that just wasn't happening. So... That was probably the, the biggest learning. And I think from a leader's point of view, in any organisation, that is so important that you need to be in touch with your, your people, no matter how many levels down, somehow you need to have a mechanism where you're in touch with the coalface, the, coal the, the workflow and every layer in between that. And that means you've got to put time into doing that and, and a way of going about doing that. And I think, that That's a a really important part of being a leader. and And so that means then, too, that your relationship with either your direct reports or for me, support staff is critical. or you know again, with the captain or the vice captain or the senior players, it's just critical that that relationship is really strong and continuous, so that again, they understand you may not agree. And we might have some debate, but at least we both understand each other and then our communication, albeit in different words, different times and in different ways, will be consistent back out through the troops, you know. it's
0: hard to do that, isn't it? When everyone's under pressure and, and failure starts to become part of the narrative and it hasn't been for a long time, it's kind of it's hard for everyone to do that though, isn't it? Where, when the pressure's off, you're able to. So in hindsight, again, what do you think – like a leader in a high-pressure environment, maybe they're, you know, whether it's sport or your sales are under pressure, your market's been disrupted, like what what would be some of your top tips for still leading effectively whilst you're under personal pressure and the team around you are, are also under that pressure and maybe starting to clam up a bit?
2: Yeah. Look, it's still the same thing. One, you've got to give yourself time to think somehow you've got to get up on the balcony, you know, whether that's for 10 minutes in a day, at the end of the day, somehow you've got to clear your mind and, and sit up on that balcony and have a look back on what was happening in the day or what was happening in that meeting or what happened at that event and look at it objectively. Then I think, you know, if you have the luxury of, of some sort of data that might be relevant, then this is my thinking. This is what I think I see. What, what's some of the key numbers telling me here right at the moment? Does that support? Does that, uh, is that counter what I'm thinking? And the third thing will be you've got to have one or two trusted people in the midst that you can go to. I can ring them up or I can walk down the corridor and I can go into their room and I I can shut the door and we can have a good conversation and I can get the answers that I'm looking for or at least get some direction. So I think the things that I would be doing all the time, just just trying to take a moment somehow, create that space, look back at what's going on, review in line with, you know, all the ways that we're hoping that we'd either play or the, the sort of results that we wanted to get. You know, that can be both positive and negative. We're not getting results. Well, what's going on? If we are, then, well, how do we leverage from that for the next day or for the next event? And then, as I said, some metrics that you know from previous are the key things that you need to look at if things are going really well or not going really well. And and you know they're the things that will give you some insight and then just a couple of key people that you can trust, you can rely on. When I said before the right people, the right people means that they're, they're skilled, they've got expertise, and that's why they're in there. But when you come to them, they're going to tell you how it is Trust. Right. So they're, yeah, they're in tune with philosophy and and directions and values and all that sort of stuff. But what they are good at is just telling you how it is right at that time.
1: They're going to call you on your BS. I mean, we need more. We all need a few more people around us that can call us on our BS, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's not enough of that. Actually, what I'm hearing there from you, John, is, uh, is effectively, I'm just hearing in my head the debrief process, Boo.
0: I didn't want to say anything. I don't want to say anything. Like it's not <laughs> not for me to pump up my own tyres, mate. But yeah,
1: <laughs> it's that same thing. It's and I don't know it's called different things or it's done yeah. slightly different ways. But that importance of actually looking at what was our objective, what was the result of that
0: objectively as well, without the personal emotional buy-in mm. and the and the bias. Yeah, yeah,
2: and you're right, totally about Adiris. But I think, but I think that's where business really misses the point, really lacks that feedback loop so for me business is in competition every day whereas sporting teams you know we kind of get this luxury of a set up pre-game time and preparation time and then you go into the game and and obviously through game individuals and teams you're always constantly just adapting and adjusting to what's been thrown at you but at the end of the day you get a result you know good or bad and then you begin a review or debrief process to understand what went right what didn't go right And then you move back into the cycle preparation, a little bit of adjustment from the last game, set up the new game. So business is, as I say, in competition every day. So they've only got a short period of time, maybe at the beginning of a day where they can get a group together and say, right, what does the day look like? What do we expect from the day? What are our sort of indicators that we will be on track? And, And away you go. And the day takes its various shapes and forms and get things thrown at you that you didn't see and then at the end of the day either as a leader or as a as a group you know what happened did we actually achieve what we set out to achieve if we did great if we didn't why not and then how do we set up for the next day and I I just think it's far harder in business because it is competition every day but I just don't think business does that very well and so things just roll
0: there's no off season
2: well, the things just roll, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And they don't, you know, they might have an offside every quarter or they might have an offside every six months, you know, but, but it's too late. It's too late.
1: What I have found, John, is the implementation of that in a business sense can't be done as, I guess, as you say, because you're, you're competing or performing when you're in the game and you've got all the time to lead up and, and it's very structured and deliberate, but in the business Way of doing what you're saying. Oh, my view is, to, and you know, this is something that I've, I've learned from Boo as well, is that it's just a better do it in the moment. You know, if something goes wrong, straight so right, okay, let's spend thirty seconds, John. Let's go through debrief. What was the outcome? What was the outcome we wanted? What was the result? What was the reason? What's our response to that? Great. Could take thirty seconds. Could take five minutes. Could take half an hour, but we can deal with it. We can go. You know, what action do we need to take from here? Take that action and move forward. But it does need to be very dynamic and it has to flow continuously every day whereas if you try and save it up for the end of the day or the end of the week or the quarterly offsite, you're losing a lot of that that well, impact you do. of the actual process
2: you do look i mean what's the time now in, in Queensland it's it's a beautiful time it's 11 o'clock in the morning you know booze halfway through the day but if we all look back at the start of the day to now can we remember what actually happened? You know, there are some bits and pieces that we remember, you know, and generally they're either a bit of a highlight or a low light. but there's so many bits and pieces in, in between that are still relevant. And so, as you say, if you keep leaving that, it's gone. You've lost it and, and there's no way of recalling that. So, yeah, your feedback should be as immediate as you can make it and, of course, as accurate as you can make it for it to have the most impact.
0: I reckon it's like the bucket of relevance. You can only hold so much in the bucket up here, right? So the more relevant that information is, the better outcomes you have. Yeah. So, John, obviously when you were nine years of age, you probably didn't realise you are going to coach one of the greatest Australian cricket teams. How did this journey unfold? Because for a lot of people, and, you know, we've got a whole generation here coming out of university, the 2019, 2021, the COVID kids moving into a – into whatever field, that they're still full of dreams. How did you fulfill yours? What was the journey there? And um, someone asked me this question the other day, how much do you put down to nature, who you are, and how much do you put it down to the processes that you, you went through from when you were kind of earning money?
2: Yeah, look, I think you know, there's, there's no doubt that it's part of it. You know, there's something in your genes, there's something in the environment that you run into, but ultimately you've got choices. You know, so I think if we again go back to that word excuses, if we put it down to nature, if we put it down to the environment, then we're actually finding an excuse for not making a choice to be better every day or better in what we do or keep chasing dreams. So, as I said, as a nine year old growing up in the backyard, I was playing cricket for Australia. That was it, that was non negotiable. And I just kept chasing that, became a professional cricketer, a whole range of things. went. Did go to university to well, I started off studying engineering, but um, unfortunately, um, engineering and I, a bit like didn't really become friends. Nonetheless, that was probably because of my sport, because I was just putting so much time into that, and the study just seemed to be getting in the road. But eventually, I got back and did a human movement studies degree, but cricket was still at the forefront, and kept going, professional cricketer, and played for Queensland, not very successfully, but played for Queensland, and it was around that time that it was time to say, well, geez. I'm not going to make it as a cricketer. You know, I've been overseas playing and a whole range of things. I've had some fantastic experiences.
0: Well, and what sort of living is that, John? You know, you're making good coin, or is it something that you're just no. living on noodles?
2: Yeah, pretty well, pretty well. Um, you know, I had a contract at Queensland. Then I had a contract, two contracts in England in Central Links League and Minor Counties League. But it, yeah, it, it was it was getting your air fares. It was getting a, a living, but you weren't putting anything in the bank. But that wasn't important. Because you were really doing what you enjoyed doing, and you know things were going along pretty well. But
1: what I'm hearing is you you were following a passion of yours. You're following yeah. something you really, really love to do. How important do you feel that's been in you? By the sounds of it, despite what's happened, and I'd love to know what happened after. You're mm-hmm. like, okay, this realization hits where this is my passion, but I can't do it. Right? There's two questions, I suppose. One is how important do you believe it is to actually follow those things that you're passionate about. And then how the heck did you recover from having to accept the fact that I'm actually not good enough to feel like for the actual playing part of it to consolidate that and accept that and then move into, you know, I suppose, the coaching space?
2: Yeah, well, I didn't move into the coaching space for some time, but well, the actual professional sport coaching space for some time. But um, firstly, you, if you can follow your passion and, and then you can earn money from it. That, that's obviously the best of both worlds. But I think, firstly, whatever you do, if you're not passionate about it, then I guess the old cliché is it, it's just hard work and it's not enjoyable and everybody else around you feels that. So somewhere in there, whatever you do, you need to have a passion for it. Now, either that's because you really love doing it or you can create, create the passion for it because you understand if you don't, then it does become hard work and so therefore you need to love what you're doing. But I think it's still about dreaming. I just think, you know, I always cast my back to that nine-year-old boy that we talked about, Boo, that I think we all grew up wherever, backyard or just at home or wherever we grew up with wonderful dreams and then somehow in school this concept of dreaming was pushed out of us or at least pushed into the recesses of our minds because it was all about basically getting through your grades and gradually going from year to year and hopefully moving on to universities or trades or, or wherever your future might lie. So the concept of dreaming kind of gets pushed back, but I'm, I'm very much one that wants to push the dreaming forward. So for me to move on from where I was, it was about them saying, well, that dream's finished, but what what's my next dream? And my next dream was around... The degree I had and was in being in sport and recreation administration, and and so you know I went into the recreation administration in Townsville City Council. I worked for the Commonwealth Games, nineteen eighty two Commonwealth Games in Brisbane. I became national director of Australian volleyball, and to me, wow, I'm I'm still in sport, which is my passion, but now I get to sort of make some decisions around moulding and architecturally designing. You know, sporting teams, organisations, people, and that was seemed to me to be uh, fantastic. However, with volleyball, they wanted to move the office to Canberra, out of Brisbane. You know, so I thought, you know, sporting teams, organisations, people, and that was seemed to me to be uh, fantastic. However, with volleyball, they wanted to move the office to Canberra, out of Brisbane. You know, so who
0: wants to live there?
2: <laughs> There's right one place I don't want to live. It was Canberra, so you know it was time to to move out. And I I then got a teaching degree uh, because again it was somewhere in the in there. It was always about teaching people, helping people to be better at what they did. So I, I went into TAFE and got a diploma of education, and then started teaching in in TAFE. And so again the dream there was, wow, you know this teaching thing, I can become one of the great teachers or become a principal, you know, this notion of still moving up the chain, which, which I think is kind of an interesting concept in itself insofar as when I look back at coaching or I look at coaching of a sport or teaching, you know, your most valuable coaches, teachers, and probably in business, your most valuable mentors and educators need to be at the ground roots level. You know, so for young children to develop, you want your best teachers down there to give mm-hmm. them the foundations of what's ahead of them. For sporting coaches or sporting environments, you want your best coaches down at those levels because you want children to be as physically capable and able as possible, then to cope with the demands of sport because it throws a lot of things at them. And same in business, the whole onboarding process, you know, really. That's where you want your best people to infuse, if you like, like, those who are coming into the business with the way it is around here and, and the, how you can become a significant contributor rather than just it being a tick and flick exercise, you know.
0: There's something really telling there, John. You, you said, oh, I did my diploma in teaching and then I was like, oh, I'm going to be a great teacher. I'm going to be a principal and it's like, I'm not just going to play cricket, i can play cricket for Australia. How often does your mindset, and I think this is something really unique to, to the few, the people that do great things, is how often when you start something do you have that mindset, which is, I really want to take this and run with it and make it something
2: big? Uh, always. Uh, and I suppose if we roll the... Picture or the movie forward a little bit. You know, I did a range of things, ended up going to America, to Canada, I should say, and getting a Master of Arts so I could come back and be a professor. And so that was another dream I've been a professor in, in academia. And, and a couple of other things happened along the line. But in 94, the Queensland Bulls coaching job came up, and Jeff Thompson, who was a legend of Australian cricket, was the head coach, been there for four years, and Queensland and never won a Sheffield Shield. As I said, I'd been part of that a long time ago and a pretty unsuccessful part of uh, my career career, but anyway, it was a little part there. And so I was going to then apply for this job, and I said, well, whew, that career career of mine, that doesn't really stack up too well against Jeff Thompson and everybody else that was applying. So how am I going to convince the Queensland board that I should be the person, not only to replace Jeff Thompson, but for them to place faith in me that by doing so, Queensland would somewhere win a Sheffield Shield, which they'd never done before. So that that was my watershed moment, I think, in terms of, I guess, my life and certainly my coaching life is that it, it actually just made me stop and try and work out me, just try and work out why I did what I did. Why do I say what I do? Why do I do what I do? What do I believe in? You know, so that was a period of time just going out into my, I used to run a bit. So that was my quiet place. I'd go out and try and think all these things through, you know, from that nine-year-old boy in the backyard, through school, through all the various people that I'd met, through all the situations that I'd been in, good and bad, and sort of collapse that into a philosophy of leadership or in this case coaching and right at the top of that is my vision you know it's just part and parcel of who I am so wherever I go whatever I do whether it's with a group or whether it's with an individual I just see in them something special something that can be done Provided that you want to do it, you know I'm I'm not going to necessarily. I'm going to create environments as I was talking about before, learning environments and and support and systems and processes around you. But ultimately, you've got to want to do it, you know. So, but firstly, it's about creating a picture that hopefully is really inspiring and aspiring for the individual, or the team to want to have a run at. It.
0: And how did you create the value? Like, what was your value proposition at that point to to win that job? Because obviously, that set you on on a very specific pathway for many years.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I still sort of remember that um, if you want a coach that is going to win the Holy Grail of Sheffield Shield, then I'm not your coach. But I said, the picture will be, if you choose me, then we're going to dominate this domestic competition for the next 10 years. That That's our, and you'll see in the background, an Everest, which was coined when I started with the Australian team, but it's still the same Symbol. So we were going to dominate domestic cricket for 10 years. And I said, somewhere in there, then we'll win a Sheffield Shield. But not only will we win a Sheffield Shield, we'll be able to repeat that because we understand how, rather than just the end goal being this Sheffield Shield. And then then, talk through a few different things, but must have resonated with a few of them. So I was appointed then head coach in 94 and we won our first Sheffield Shield in that first year of my coaching. Now I was just one part of that there's a lot of other contribution to that but I like everything I suppose when you set about change and you're doing things differently then if you can gain some early wins some early success it just really gives you a momentum to not only for you but everybody around you.
1: So to, do you mention that uh, those that are listening to this uh, podcast John has a, a backdrop behind him and it has, there's an Everest hidden within you. It's just sitting behind uh, over his shoulder. Explain a little bit more about that. You touched on it briefly then, John. What does that mean? What's that statement mean? And, and how can people apply that in their own lives?
2: So I coached Queensland for five years and, and we won a couple of shields. We won a couple of one day titles and going back to where we started, I didn't actually have a dream of being this coach for Queensland for a start. But when the job came up, I thought, I think I can do that. But I had to double check with a couple of, Alan Border was playing then and Ian Healy and a couple of people, I had to check that it was, they they were for real and then I'd, I'd have a run at it. So by the time the Australian job came up, which was in 1999, I did have a coaching pedigree behind me and I was again successful in my presentation to the board to get the role. And so in my first meeting with the team and what's important to understand with, national teams, certainly a cricket team and an Australian cricket team, is that you do only come together in competition. So in other words, there's no pre-season, there's no off-season where you can do some stuff. You come together about three days out from, in this case, a test series, which was against Pakistan and India. And so while some people knew a bit about me, there was really nobody in the room, there was no Queenslanders in the room that understood me Totally. I'd coached against everybody that was in the room. So firstly, I laid out some ground rules about me and and what I expected of me and then what I expected of them. But then for me, it was about really hitting them between the eyes with the notion that you're a good team, but you're not a great team. And so the concept was that we were going to go on a journey to Everest together. And, you know, Everest symbolised this notion of top of the world, teamwork, risk, collaboration, hard work. Preparation, and and still, even if you do all the right things, there's still no guarantee of reaching the top, you know. But nonetheless, the only way that you possibly can reach the top is to do all those sort of things. So, so that was that was kind of the starting point for them. Because again, firstly, for a, a business who or a leader or a founder or an owner of business or board or whatever, that's kind of the big wheel. That's that's the organisation, and so you can create your vision and so on. And and, and the important thing I think always about vision statements is I never wanted to be able to cut and paste it for somebody else, you know, like somebody can cut and paste mine and use it or I can cut and paste theirs and use it for me. I wanted to differentiate. And so then Australia had its vision around at that time, it's pretty similar still, I think, that they wanted to create cricket as Australia's favourite summer sport. So I didn't think that vision would sit very nicely within a cricket dressing room, within a playing dressing room. So this is where basically then I encapsulated this notion of Everest, and then Everest related to, well, we're going to change the game. And it also then related to history where I talked about the Invincibles, which was a famous Australian sporting team in 1948 that went to England and were undefeated, and they were given a label of the Invincibles. So I said our journey when it comes to an end, and that's what I said, I had no idea when that will be when we all kind of disbanded that what we will have achieved should, in a sense, be the same as the invincibles, meaning that we would have done something special in the game so that we might have been accorded a label as well of what we'd achieved in that period of time. And so they were the kind of sentiments expressed to the team initially. And then, of course, it was... How does that translate itself into into daily operations, you know your technical development, physical and all those sort of things. But without that picture, then if we're looking at technical skills or physical skills, mental skills or or tactical skills, they had to align themselves with this journey of changing the game. and so that was a that was the constant thread through everything that we did.
0: And I think that's a key element of greatness. What you've said there is we're going to be this. I don't know how long it's going to take, but we're going to be it. It just sets the the benchmark, the Teslas, the SpaceXs, the Blue Origins, the stuff that's so big and such a massive statement. And I think where businesses make a big mistake is they go, we're going to be the greatest in 12 months. And that pressure and the fact that it's not going to happen because no one can do that creates negative energy, right? It seems that if you have these great visions, but you detach yourself from time, but you really focus on the granular details day to day, the vision just falls into place.
2: Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I, I don't think that I've really ever set a timeline on a vision. You know, that maybe there's a timeline on strategies, you know, as you're saying, and then, and then how you operationalise that, you know, on a monthly, weekly, daily, hourly basis because that's what you can more easily measure then. They're the things that keep you on track.
0: And that's where I think people come unstuck, though. I think they think strategy is like a vision statement is like, oh, let's sit in a room, thrash it out. Like a vision statement is not really a vision statement. It's This is going to be our essence. Yeah. You've got to know what that is.
2: Yeah, no, totally. And and that's what I say. I think in a lot of places you you can just cut and paste, and and even down to values and principles, people can cut and paste those and it doesn't matter. You you could be blindfolded and and not know the business's name because it's exactly the same stuff.
1: So, John, one of the things in the, in the pre-podcast uh, information was that, that mentions here in your bio about a step-by-step methodology to create and maintain peak performance. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Like what are, your, what, what are some of the foundational things that you believe that people need to do or consider or be aware of? And I'm sure we've probably touched on a couple of them already, but what are, what are the, some of those steps so that people can kind of get an understanding of, okay, where the hell do I start? If I actually want to start performing at a higher level, at a peak level what the hell do i do
2: yes well we have we have sort of touched on them and it it does relate to this concept of everest and because first we've got to have a a foundation which is base camp and uh, whether you're an individual whether you're a leader of a team or a team there needs to be a a starting point as i said before there's a vision which is kind of the you know that's the summit that's where we want to be but where are we right now as an individual you know, I often want people to understand when they've had a really good day or a good project, good meeting, whatever it might be, what did I do? You know, so firstly identify when that was. So you need a specific time or event or whatever. And then what did I do? So what was in my control? Because they're they're the elements of of you being able to deliver success and and not only deliver success, but continually improve. On what those, if you like, basic reference points are, and that that's kind of the same for the leader. You know, when I coached well, when I led well, what did I do? The team. You know, when we played well, what was happening? And when when you move to team, you know, to me one and and also the leader, one of the really important things to make sure that you include in there is what a term sacrificial players, and and that's a term borrowed by an AFL coach, David Parkin, who I met. When we won the Sheffield Shield, uh, Carlton won the the flag that year and we got together and had a good chat because he mentioned a couple of things in his summary of why the season was so successful. And and one was, you know, getting on board the northbound locomotive, you know, so that's all around culture, the stakeholders, the players, the support staff, everybody believed that they were on this locomotive, which was unstoppable. And then on top of that, he mentioned, well, we, we also not only measure the normal... Data, the normal metrics of how you win games. But we also wanted to look at the contributions of players away from those normal numbers. So, you know, in AFL, it was kind of hardball gets or number of kicks or contested possessions, you know, all those sort of numbers that everybody has. But he was looking at players who were putting their teammates in those positions to get those numbers. And he called those sacrificial players. And in the end, he said something along the lines, you know, there were 64 sacrificial plays. In a game, we never lost a game. So that kind of starts the metric, if you like. So understanding what you control, base camp and leader and team and individual. What are those sort of things that that I think are really important that I should be doing? So you move from there and and that sort of it ignites your, your strategy, you know. So so from base camp, you move to your game plan. And everybody needs a game plan, individual, leader or team. You just need a game plan for winning, you know. So that's based on that foundation. And so that becomes your framework. But as I was saying before, nothing goes according to plan. Nothing ever goes according to plan. So so therefore, from game plan, you need to mobilise what I term your set plays. And these are your controllables. These are the things that I know that I must do, either as an individual or a leader or, or a, a team, that puts me in a position to have a successful meeting, a successful event, a successful day, a successful game whatever that is in front of you you know it doesn't guarantee as we said about Everest before there is absolutely no guarantees but there is a guarantee if you're not doing this that you won't ever head in the right direction or you won't head in the right direction for very long.
1: And this information John I believe you've written a few books is there somewhere that someone can get a bit more depth of some of this stuff in what you've actually written about?
2: They can go to my website you know BuchananCoaching.com there'll be uh, a means to read that or tap into me and then there is a, an e-book called Live Better As Possible, which talks about a whole lot of these things in different little stories as we go through. And, and then finally, the last step is obviously going back to Boo's debrief for the review. So once we put in place our set plays, then hopefully we're going in the right direction. What are the results we're getting? What does that look like? Review them. How do we sustain that? How do we improve that? And then it, it, it keeps circling on itself from there.
1: Fantastic, fantastic. And I can only imagine the uh, experiences you've had you know, traveling the world with sporting teams and having to move your, your own expectations or your own dreams, but also keeping a, that thread of sport there from when you, were, you know, when you were nine years old. So in your journey, I imagine you've learned a hell of a lot. If you could go back to the nine-year-old nine year John that we spoke about earlier, what's some advice that you would, would give him to set him up for life?
2: Certainly for a start, keep dreaming. And chase your dreams as much as you possibly can and with that then believe that you're capable of chasing that dream because that that's where I came unstuck a number of times I think that you know I I doubted in my abilities or you know there were detractors of what I was doing and and so that threw doubts into my mind till I got to that point of me understanding me now i don't think a nine-year-old is capable of that uh, they can understand their small world a little bit maybe but firstly yeah, just keep dreaming chase your dreams and back yourself all the way
0: and that wraps up another episode of the few Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development, and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Awesome. No, that's great, John, for your your contribution both to to the game, to allowing our great nation to have such an extended period of of success and not to mention, as a Queenslander, getting us out of the muck and a trophy in the trophy cabinet. John yeah look that's fantastically insightful I'm sure we'll have another chat because the depth of, of the conversations we can have with you are probably pretty uh, pretty epic so thanks so much for, for joining Sean and I on, on the few today John really really appreciate you taking the time
1: really appreciate it John thank you
2: yeah no look I really enjoyed it too and uh, Sean thanks very much for having me on
1: This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.